This is episode 14 with Dr. Joseph Choi, co-founder and COO of Hypercare. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Dr. Choi is a co-founder and COO of Hypercare, a platform for clinicians to securely communicate and locate each other quickly and effectively. Dr. Choi is also an emergency physician in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's medical school. Dr. Choi earned his master's of public health degree at Harvard and earned his MD at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Choi about what he's seeing in the field regarding COVID-19 how technology is helping solve today's healthcare problems, and how his curiosity as a child led him to pursue a career in medicine. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hey, Joe, how's it going? I'm good, Justin. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us on Asian Tech Leaders. Um, for those who are listening, because I, I do feel like um, you know the time at which this conversation takes place is... Uh, notable, it is Monday, March 30th. Um, so at least for me personally, I've been kind of working from home and, and self-isolating for about two weeks. Um, and really excited to have you on the uh, podcast, uh, Joe, because um, you work uh, at a very interesting intersection, both as a uh, staff physician uh, you're also an assistant professor at U of T uh, in the medical department, and you also are the co-founder and COO of a healthcare technology company, Hypercare. Um, so excited to have you on the on the podcast and just get your perspective on what you're hearing and seeing out there um, through all your different platforms. So I guess you know, first question to you is. What are you seeing and hearing right now in the field uh, with regards to COVID-19? Um, but to answer your, your first question, you know, in the field right now, uh, you know, we're, we're all in battle mode. I think every hospital in Ontario and Canada and probably around the world, we're just, you know, hunkering down and getting ready. Uh, we've been fortunate to have a little bit of a reprieve and our cases are kind of climbing a lot slower than, let's say, in New York or in other places in the U.S., and you know, definitely slower than the places in Europe. Uh, so we're we're just trying to get everything together. The you know, situation changes incredibly quickly, and you know we're just trying to adapt with something that you know is changing literally hour by hour. Um, you know, I get probably twenty emails a day from my hospital, you know, telling us about policies and telling us about the situation, and you know, me and a bunch of colleagues at work. You know, we have several group chats that talk about several aspects of COVID and COVID planning. And, you know, we're probably sending a thousand messages a day on that. So it's it's pretty bewildering. Um, in terms of what's going on at the hospital, you know, we're starting to see the trickle of, uh, you know, the COVID-19 patients that are getting really sick. Uh, as you guys have seen, you know, the vast majority of COVID patients do okay. They stay at home. You know, it's, it's a pretty significant illness you know they feel like they're flattened by a truck but uh, most of them will do just fine at home um but with the lag time of you know when you first get infected to when you actually get hospitalized uh we're, we're slowly starting to see that wave building now 
And so we're just trying to get everything together and planning out all the worst case scenarios. You know, hopefully it won't get as bad as Italy or, you know, in New York, but we are definitely preparing for, for that. Right. So in your perspective, the peak in terms of the, um, the load that the healthcare system will have to handle hasn't hit yet. Is that right? No, not even close. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the, at the same time, I think as the load gets heavier, um, you know, in the media, obviously they're going to report it as, you know, more people getting hospitalized, more people, um, you know, going to the ICU, more people dying. And, you know, I just want, hope people remember that it doesn't mean that social distancing is not working. It doesn't mean that what we're doing is failing. It's just, you know, we are seeing the effects of what happened two weeks ago. So, right. Know. So there's, there, I mean, it, it's, is it fair to just say that there's a, on in general, 14 day, two week lag in terms of um, symptoms and actually uh, expressing um, symptoms of the actual virus? So when you first, like when you first get infected, you know, they say that yeah. the median time is about five days before you start showing any symptoms. Um, and there's a range about that. And then in terms of getting sick enough to have to go to a hospital, you're looking at, you know, over a week, between one week and two weeks, that's when you start seeing the, the sicker mm -hmm. people start to, you know, get into trouble. So that's what we're yeah. kind of seeing now. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the big thing on some of our minds and mine definitely is, you know, I've been working from home and self-isolating um, to a pretty good degree for the last two weeks. Um, so for folks who haven't really been out and have been kind of doing a good job of social distancing the last two weeks, if they're not showing any symptoms, um, is that a pretty high, is there a pretty high probability that they do not have COVID-19 um, and therefore they should obviously continue social distancing and, you know, washing hands and doing all the best practices, but is that a, a fair assessment? I, to an extent, you know, we know that there is a possibility for asymptomatic carriers uh, that can theoretically infect other people. I don't know the, the exact numbers. I think that science is evolving. Um, but for the most part, you know, if you've been at home and you've been very judicious and you don't have symptoms, I wouldn't be concerned. I can't say with 100% certainty that yeah. you definitely don't have it because, again, you know, it, you could be just really, really early in the illness and not showing right. symptoms yet. Uh, but, you know, typically within a week from whenever you got exposed to the virus, if you were to develop the disease, you usually show something. Uh, the 14 yeah. day period, you know, the, all the advisories about the 14 day quarantine after you travel and this and that, you know, back before we had community spread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know that that was just to be like really safe so they yeah. haven't seen any one develop symptoms after 14 days so that's why they kind of drew it at that line right um and i guess another you know question for you is this about testing because we've seen in some other countries like south korea singapore having wide-scale testing available was just key in understanding who had the virus and who hasn't in ontario i think there have been at least around 
um, I think the latest number is around 49,000 patients approved to get testing. Are mm -hmm. you finding, or at least anecdotally hearing that testing availability is an issue right now, or is that not very much the case, at least um, in Ontario and Canada? I think, you know, it's a, it's a confluence of factors and, uh, you know, we can talk offline a little bit about some of the inner workings, uh, but essentially, you know, I, I think it's a, a mix of trying to conserve capacity. Um, so not necessarily running out of tests, but making sure that tests that do get performed get resulted quickly. Mm. Um, also reserving the tests for um, people who need an, an answer right now. So people who are being admitted to the hospital, people who are you know trying to get their testing done before they go to the operating room for whatever procedure yeah. um uh because you know that that's when we need the the fastest and assuming that everyone is doing their social distancing everyone is isolating themselves you know the the argument goes that you know if you have symptoms whether you test covid positive or not just assume that you are treated as such mm -hmm. and then if you get sick enough to come to the hospital that's when we'll test you to confirm you not so much necessarily for treatment because the treatment of covid you know we don't have any specific treatment for it but more for isolation and for cohorting so you know we don't want to put a patient with covid next to a patient without covid um, for the risk of you know, transmitting to other patients. So that that seems to be the more important part. And also obviously to protect healthcare workers. So if we know someone is COVID positive, then we may have to take extra precautions for those people. Right, got it. And um, kind of switching gears to technology, how, how have you seen technology helping, if at all, um, in solving uh, what's happening um, right now with the healthcare system and the potential influx of, of uh, patients coming from COVID? Yeah, like I think, you know, technology is is huge right now, um, especially in the Canadian, the Ontario context. Uh, you know, I think that with on the technology side, obviously a lot of people think of it almost as an afterthought, like, you know, people are just catching up um, you know, for a lot of reasons, not just about like, you know, willingly choosing to degrade the IT infrastructure, but it's just competing priorities with budgets mm -hmm. and with, with all those things. But right now, like telemedicine, something that never really got off the ground in Canada is exploding over the last two weeks mm. because, you know, we're, we're trying to find ways to not have to be in physical contact with people. Um, so any way that we can accurately and safely assess people um, remotely, you know, is is going to be huge in terms of preventing spread and also um, just keeping people at home. Um, and you know, Ontario in the over the last you know three, four, five years, they've been undergoing um, you know a really big digital transformation to try to get everyone up to speed on electronic health records mm -hmm. and so we've they've done some good work obviously this covid stuff has really thrown a wrench into those plans because anytime you uh upgrade an electronic health record it's it's very disruptive it's a multi-year process and that's definitely not something that we want to do in the midst of a pandemic so that's been put on hold and just what hypercare does so you know we we focus on the the communication aspect of things and you know a lot of hospitals 
have really re-examined those types of workflows, whether with Hypercare, with other vendors, with other platforms, just to find ways to, to collaborate. Mm. Um, because, you know, the traditional paper chart, phone calls, faxes, to even the extent uh, emails don't don't really quite do the job that is needed to be done. And so they, they've been, I, I think scrambling is, uh, you know, a, is strong term, but you know, they, it's definitely motivated people to figure this stuff out. Something that they've been, that's been on their minds for several years. And this is kind of the impetus to say like, okay, like we really yeah. need to do it now. Um, so, so technology is playing a huge part. And I think the community from what I've seen, you know, a lot of startups and a lot of, you know, established players, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to help however they can, um, you know, pro, Providing the direct patient care obviously is number one, but whatever you can to, you know, protect healthcare workers, to support healthcare workers, even to just like keep their sanity is, is very important. So, you know, even things like meditation apps that are giving their services out for free and, you know, Uber, Uber Eats, all these people giving, giving out discounts and things for healthcare workers. You know, I think all those things play some part in kind of keeping us going. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting time, not just for healthcare technology, obviously, but um, I think a lot of uh, pure play technology apps or use cases like even e-commerce, obviously, um, now that's going to be much more popular because that's really the only way for people to shop these days. So I think what will come out of of this, whenever it is done, will be um, much more broader adoption of uh, technology that has kind of been obvious, but not, nece not necessarily needed until uh, times like now. Um, but I guess on uh, hypercare, it would be great for those who don't know uh, too much about it, if you could explain what hypercare is, what it does, and also would love to just hear about the genesis of how uh, you and your team decided to uh, build this um, a few years ago. Yeah, so hypercare, um, I guess in a nutshell, you know, and I always hate to do this, you know, to call something the <laughs> X of Y. Yeah. Uh, but you know, to, to kind of summarize it, it's kind of Slack plus pager duty for healthcare. So we're, we're, we're essentially a communication collaboration platform that um, is secure. And that's one of the harder parts about healthcare is that it's highly regulated, and I think for good reason. Um, but because it's so highly regulated, the you know, you can't just use um, a lot of the tools that are out there, you know, like WhatsApp yeah. works great. Um, but when it comes to patient security and patient privacy, not so much. Um, same thing with Google Documents, right? So we're trying to kind of fill that need to help provide the platform where people can communicate and collaborate on, on patient care. Um, and obviously to build in, you know, features that make sense for clinicians, um, you know, putting in memes in your chat, probably less useful, um, <laughs> but, you know, making priority pages and templated, you know, messages that are specific or healthcare might be more useful. So, you know, just trying to re-envision the, the stuff that exists for every other industry, but giving a healthcare twist on it. Right. And, and uh, yeah, uh, I was just going to ask, is this built on top of EHRs or does it have to be integrated into that? Yeah, so it's a standalone platform. So anyone can pick it up, download it, yeah. um, you know, install it, get their colleagues on it. Great. Um, 
for the hospital partners that we are uh, working with, you know, we've integrated into their system. So some people want uh, either one way or two way communication between the platform and the EHR. Um, you know, I won't bore you with the details of, you know, all how those interplay, but where you think of us as kind of the, the conduit. So we, we are, we're, our platform is just like people to send and receive stuff. And yeah. then EHR is a separate thing where it's kind of the, the source of truth, but providers want the freedom to kind of speak somewhat off the record and decide, you know, what should go into the patient charts. Um, because there there are a lot of conversations that are off the cuff. It's like, yeah. hey, can I pick your brain on this? Um, that that isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily belong in the patient chart. So yeah, we we kind of like float just above patient charts and a lot of other IT structures in mm. hospitals. Very neat. And but ultimately, of, we want it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, you go ahead. I was just going to ask: Are um, a lot of clinicians just using their their own um, phones to, to download the app and kind of start communicating with their colleagues or are you seeing this uh, much more broadly adopted by the entire system and therefore using kind of enterprise uh, devices? So we've seen both, um, you know, physicians really want to use it on their phone. So yeah. we designed the app to be completely self-contained and uh, you know, it can be remotely managed, but you don't have yeah. to install like mobile device management stuff, you don't have to get an enterprise device per se. Um, you know, some some hospitals go the other way and say, like, you know, I, I really want you to use enterprise devices instead. In in which case, you know, that works as well. We kind of leave it to the clients to to do that. So, you know, we've we've had your traditional enterprise hospital clients where we sign yeah. the deal with one hospital, we, you know, integrate with their active directory and do all that. We've had cases where it's literally a group of four doctors at a nursing home saying, Hey, like, I want to use your platform. And they, you know, we set them up within 20 minutes, they send us the money and you know, you're good to go and you can use it however you want. So we definitely have both sides um, covered on that. And right now, what we're seeing during this COVID um, situation is because we, we opened up our platform to give it for free to everybody during this pandemic. And we've had, you know, a lot of response from a lot of different people. Mm. And, you know, to be able to set them up real quick and to make have them be assured that, you know, everything is managed as tightly as an enterprise, I think has been very attractive to people. That's great. And I guess the question I also had is as um, just looking at your background, how do you manage your time and prioritize between you know hyper care um being on the front end and also uh your time as a assistant professor at u of t yeah so um i i'd say i could probably do a lot better in managing my time um and you know i try to keep my clinical as completely separate from all the other things as possible because mm -hmm. you know clinical is definitely the number one priority and I need they need my 100% attention uh, but for the gaps that I do see you know in my schedule it, it's just yeah it's just trying to be as disciplined as I can um, you know to focus on one thing at a time you know even though 
I might have 10 different competing priorities just to be able to focus and carving out that time. Uh, you know, working in the emergency department, we know that, you know, task switching and multitasking, as much as it seems like it's, you know, a you're doing a lot, but in the end, you're actually not doing that much. And if anything, you're kind of degrading your performance on everything that you do. Yeah. So trying to get bring that mentality in. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think it comes at the expense of probably the sleep that I should be getting. Uh, <laughs> How often are uh, you sleeping now? Uh, I mean, I, you know, again, as a shift worker, you, you learn to fall asleep on a drop of a hat and you know, <laughs> yeah. get, get those few precious minutes wherever you can. Um, but I've been, I've been like doing all right. I think, you That's know, good. we'll, we'll see once, once uh, things get super, super busy. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm lucky that again, as a shift worker in the emergency department, I do have that flexibility where I can trade shifts, you know, if there are things that I absolutely need to do. Um, so it, the two of them kind of coincide nicely. I, I can't imagine holding multiple nine to five jobs. Like if I had a clinic that opened nine to five and I had to do all this stuff on the side, I don't think that would work. So right. it kind of lends itself to the emerged off lifestyle. Right, right. Um, and I guess in the last few minutes, it'd be great to talk a little bit more about your upbringing and um, kind of what led you to where you are today. And, you know, in the podcast, we, we usually start with that, but given what's happening in the world right now, I thought it'd be interesting to start with uh, more of your work and your perspective. Um, sure. But would love to kind of rewind a little bit and just hear a little bit more about your upbringing, where you're from, and also kind of the influence that your parents had on you. Yeah, so, you know, born and raised in Toronto and Scarborough, specifically one of the suburbs of Toronto, um, which uh, with a predominantly Asian community, at least in my neighborhoods, I think throughout school, you know, the East Asian, you know, population definitely was probably half, if not more. And, you know, so it, it was kind of nice <laughs> to, to grow up around like people who looked at, like me. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, yeah, like, you know, in terms of like how my childhood was not to get all Freudian on it, but I guess, um, yeah, like my, my dad was always, you know, he, you know, my parents both immigrated from China um, back in the late seventies. Um, and, you know, my dad, was the kind of methodical, logical, um, you know, very intellectual type of thinker. Uh, you know, he he ended up being a chef in Canada, but when he was back in China, like he was actually in pre-med um, and he was really into science, really into medicine. And so even as kids, you know, we'd be watching TLC. There was a show called Operation, which essentially is someone taping an operation and you just watch it. So that's the stuff I was watching when I was like four years old. Um, and, you know, he was always super interested in sci the sciences and mm -hmm. environment, things like that. So, you know, more of the academic side. My mom oh, was, he, like, was he working in a restaurant when you were growing up as well? Like yeah, in parallel? So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So he, he, once he came to Canada, it was all just like in the restaurant and food services industry. Yeah. Um, my mom, you know, she, she's probably like the hustler of the family for sure. <laughs> so she's always like out, you know, trying to get those deals and, you know, she's the fiery one and she's the, uh, 
the one that will let you know exactly how she feels about any given situation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she, uh, she was in retail and she did like all sorts of things, you know, um, in all sorts of jobs, but a lot of them were like restaurant based jobs as well. And, uh, and yeah, and I, I see their influences kind of in, in kind of alternating ways. So by the time I went through the sciences and undergrad and medicine, you know, that was largely, I think my dad's influence mm. and, you know, just kind of his, his interests kind of, you know, brushed off on me. Um, but at the same time, now that I'm in more of the entrepreneurial side of things, like some of the traits that my mom has brought on me has, uh, you know, it's, has really started to rub off on me in terms of like how I interact in negotiations mm-hmm. and how like, you know, I'm more aggressive in like getting the deals and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe I'm getting older as well, where I'm just more likely to tell you what's on my mind as opposed <laughs> yeah. to when I was younger, you know, maybe a little bit more deference, maybe a little bit more careful with, uh, you know, with being polite and being, being a little bit more cautious. Mm. So, yeah. Very neat. And then even the decision to be a doctor, was that really on your own volition or did your parents kind of nudge you a certain way other than your dad's curiosity and kind of medicine? Um, I think it was more natural. Like they never explicitly say you have to do X. Yeah. I think it would have, you know, really like my dad really didn't care what I did. Um, my mom is more like go to school so you can have a job where you don't have to like be breaking your back or to, um, you know, be, be putting your life in danger or anything like that. So it's, it's actually kind of funny because, uh, you know, until residency, I'd say, um, you know, it was, it was fine. And then once she started hearing about, um, you know, how tough the hours in residency are, you know, how little sleep I was getting, how, you know, how medical training is in general, out of nowhere, she's like, hey, like, you know, if you, if you feel like it's too stressful, like, don't do it. You know, if you think it's like too hard, like, don't do it. And then I remember, like, thinking to myself, like, where was this opinion? Like, when I was growing up, like, all I heard was, (laughs) like, you know, like, get your hundreds and you know the the stereotypical kind of asian parent thing where like you get 98 all they care about is like the missing two percent <laughs> and you know i i definitely don't get it as hard as some people seem to do um but definitely like you know that that expectation of performance was there and i thought it was very interesting once like you know i've kind of like quote unquote made it i was like you know going through residency all of a sudden she was like, Hey, like, you know, if it's, if it's really bad, that bad, like, you know, you should, you should take care of yourself and, and think about like changing if it's like too tough. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was interesting, <laughs> surprising. <laughs> uh, but, but now, now I think, you know, I think once, once your kid has shown like they can kind of handle it and they're like, you don't have to be on their ass all the time to make sure that they, you know, study hard and stuff. I think now they she probably thinks about all the other wellness things and all the other aspects yeah. of my life. So <laughs> that's great. And um, what advice would you have for, let's say, your younger self or somebody who might be 
uh, still in school or early in their professional life and fig trying to figure out what they want to do uh, with their work? Uh, any advice that you'd have for those types of people? Um, I say, you know, I don't have any, I don't think I have any sage advice necessarily. I'd say, you know, when people say like, you know, I want to chase my dream of doing something. One of the things that I always question is like, how are you sure that that is like the one thing you're meant to do? Like, yeah, I, I would say, you know, I, I kind of had an inkling that I wanted to do medicine um, from pretty early on. But at the same time, I didn't like just automatically put on the blinders and say, you know, I have to do medicine or I have to do this or that. Like, I think it makes you a more well-rounded individual to use a cliche term um, to, to just try different things. Like, you know, I, I, I thought that being an entrepreneur would be the last thing I ever would want to do. Mm. And there are days where I still question that <laughs> whether I, I made the right decision, but you know, a lot of times you find your passion just by experimenting and, mm. you know, by trying different things, seeing, and even things that at first don't rub you the wrong way or don't seem like the thing that you want to do. Like, you know, try different aspects, try a bit of everything. I think that's why I ended up in Emerge because, you know, I found so many different aspects of medicine so interesting. And the emergency department was one of the few places where you got to see it all. You got to do it all, um, you know, to some degree. And I think that's what's been successful for me in that, you know, a lot of the people that I see around me, you know, we all we all have ADHD. We all can't sit still. We all want to try new things. Yeah. Sometimes they're like huge flops and you end up wasting like a lot of time and money. But I think that's that's part of the fun, right? And uh, and just you know, keep your eyes open and what you think you want to do for the rest of your life may not necessarily be true you know, one, two, five years down the road, it's always good to, you know, to keep challenging that assumption and keep seeing what else is out there. Yeah, awesome advice. Um, and we can wrap it up there. Again, thanks so much, Joe, for joining and also sharing your insights, not just about um, what's happening in, in the front lines, but also uh, your story, which I'm sure is really inspiring to a lot of people. So I guess last thing to close it out is what's your PSA for um all the listeners out there who are maybe cooped at home and trying to figure out what to do <laughs> yeah i mean i'd say number one is stay the f home <laughs> yeah. uh, i think uh you know it, it's going to be a, a long haul um and i definitely can appreciate people you know that this is a huge disruption to their life and it's adding a lot of different stress i can't even imagine the people who like are not making an income um, because of it. But keep in mind that, you know, even if you don't care, if you catch it, you don't want to spread it to your parents. You don't want to spread it to your loved ones who, yeah. you know, may not do so well. Um, so it, it's, it's going to be a grind, but, you know, we're all in this together and, uh, you know, we're doing this for each other and yeah, go out for a walk. Like, yeah, <laughs> stay six know. feet apart. Yeah, six feet apart, you know, go out for a walk, take your, take your dog out. Um, you know, I've definitely done a lot more, you know, more walks around the neighborhood than I have yeah. recently. Um, but uh, yeah, the main thing is, you know, this, 
this situation is bigger than all of us. And, you know, we all kind of have to do our part, even when it seems like you staying at home is not doing anything. Um, trust me, it is. Thank you. Again, appreciate the sage advice. Um, stay healthy. Thank you for all that you and your colleagues are doing on the front lines and uh, keeping everybody safe and healthy. And um, hopefully we can see each other in person soon. But until then, uh, take care, Joe. Yeah, you too. Stay safe. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.